I'd like to ask you to turn in your Bibles this morning to Hebrews chapter 8. We're going to pick up in chapter 8 where we left out last week, and that is the quotation in verses 8 and 12. We're going to look at that in detail this morning. Now, if you're like me, your health insurance benefits change every year. You may pay a higher deductible. Uh, you, your copay may change. You may drop a certain part of your insurance, like your dental coverage. And I would have to admit that the only thing more tedious for me to read than an insurance policy is the IRS instructions. But you know what? I force myself to read it because it tells me what my benefits are. And if you don't know your benefits, you won't take advantage of them. And if you don't know your benefits, you might end up paying for something that's already covered in the policy. I would suggest to you this morning that many Christians are not aware of the great benefits that they enjoy in Jesus Christ. And because of that, the enemy takes advantage of them. They end up paying for things that are already covered in the policy. For instance, there are many Christians who are plagued by guilt. Do you know what the policy says? Look at verse 12. God says, I will remember their sins no more. Now when you are plagued with guilt, you are remembering something that God doesn't remember. It's covered in the policy. There are many Christians who feel alienated from God. What does the policy say? Look at verse 10. God says, I will be their God, and they shall be my people. There is no reason to feel alienated from God. He is right with you. Other Christians put themselves under many man-made rules. When God says in the policy, verse 10, I will put my laws into their minds, and I will write them upon their hearts. You know, Paul warns against this in in Galatians chapter 4, there he says Abraham had two sons. He had Ishmael, who was born to Hagar, a bondwoman, and he had Isaac, who was born to Sarah, the free woman. And he says, in that picture of Abraham's two sons, there is an allegory. He says, Abraham's two, uh, the two women in that, in that story, Sarah and Hagar, represent two covenants. The one covenant is, is Hagar, who is the law, and she bears children who are slaves, who produce things according to the flesh. Sarah represents the new covenant, and she bears children who are free, who are children of promise. And Paul's point is that there are many people who are actually born of the free woman as children of God, but we live like slaves under bondage to the slave woman because we don't know any better. And so this morning, I want us to take the time to read and note the benefits of the new covenant. This is our contract. This is our insurance policy, if you like. And it's recorded in verses 8 to 12, and it's really a quote from Jeremiah 31 describing the new covenant. And what I want to do this morning is simply walk through these verses and pick out eight details that you and I need to note. I've listed them in your bulletin. They're real simple. We'll just walk through them. Number one, it is different. Notice verse 8. Behold, days are coming, says the Lord, when I will effect a new covenant. Now, there are two Greek words for new. One is neos. It means new in time, but not something altogether new. And then there's another Greek word for new, and that's the word kainos. It means new in form, new in quality, and therefore altogether different from anything that existed before. For instance, if I told you I got a new car, that would be neos. Because when I get a new car, it's never really new. It's just new to me. I, I say, I got a new car. You say, what year is it? It's a 98. But it's new to me. But see, even if I got a brand new 2006 vehicle, it would still be neos. Because if you ever notice when you buy a new car, you think, man, this is great. I got a unique color. I got these unique features. And you start to drive your new car around. And what's the first thing you notice? 
are a whole lot of other cars just like my car, only that guy's got nicer wheels and he's got nicer this. You see, it's not new in that it's different from anything else. If you said to me today, Dan, I just invented a Gula Luga wag, I would say, now that's new. That's kainos. That's new like nothing ever before. And kainos is the word he uses here. He says we have a new covenant. It is altogether new. It is altogether different. In fact, to make that clear, look at verse 9. He says, not like the covenant which I made with their fathers. You see, this is not just an enhanced model. It's not just an attachment. He didn't just take the old covenant and make some modifications. The new covenant is altogether different. Second thing we can notice about it. It is enacted by God. Notice verse 8 again. Behold, days are coming, says the Lord, when I will effect a new covenant. You see, we did not negotiate this with God. It is not a cooperative agreement. In, in, in sports, they have a, a, a new phrase. It's, it's called CBA, Collective Bargaining Agreement. Hockey just missed an entire season because the players and owners couldn't agree on a contract. Last week, they agreed on a contract. They both signed a contract, and it describes or defines the terms of their relationship for the next six years. This is how the owners will operate. This is how the players will operate for the next six years. That's their agreement. Well, this covenant spells out the terms of our relationship with God forever. This is our collective bargaining agreement. Only there is no collective and there is no bargaining. God enacted this agreement with us. There were no negotiations. There were no closed-door meetings. There was no give-and-take. There were no holdouts because we had no leverage, God enacted the new covenant. In fact, the best word to help you understand this word covenant is the word will, as in a last will and testament. In fact, this word is used that way uh, in, in, in the Greek language. Now, who writes a will? One person. That's why a will always begins, I, Dan James Green, being of sound mind and sound body, do bequeath all of my worldly possessions. So it begins with the word I, because one person writes a will. It's a solo endeavor. And a beneficiary has no part in determining the benefits. I was only in one will so far. Uh, it was my grandfather on my mother's side, and when he passed away, to my surprise, I got $1,200 Canadian money, which I think was about $800 U.S. money. But I had no idea I was in that will. He wrote the will. He enacted the will. I was the beneficiary of the will. There was no negotiating that went on there. Uh, I have to correct that. Actually, I was in another will. Bun had me in her will for a while because Bun was going to bequeath to me her dog. And she was so concerned about her dog that she was going to put it in her will that I got the dog. And when, when I thought about it a while, I said, no, Bun, I, I don't want your dog because I have a cat that would eat your dog. See, when it comes to a will, one person enacts the will. I have the I have the right to reject or accept that will, but as a beneficiary, I don't negotiate. I don't change the will. I don't, I don't incorporate or enact the will. That's something only one person does. And we are simply the beneficiaries of this new covenant, this new will that God has written. Third characteristic, it is with Israel. Verse 8 again, it says, When I will effect a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Now, in this regard, the New Covenant is exactly like the Old Covenant. It is made with Israel. It is made with the Jews. 
Now, I'm millennialists choke on this verse because they say that there are no promises still applying to Israel. Covenant theologians choke on this verse because they say that the new covenant is promised to the church. But the new covenant is not promised to the church. It is a covenant that God made with Israel. In fact, God has never made a covenant with Gentiles. And as far as I could tell, He never will. All of the covenants are made with Israel. That's why Paul in Romans 9, 4, speaking of the Jews, says, to whom belong the covenants? You say, well then, how do I as a Gentile get in on the covenant? Well, Paul paints us a picture of that in Romans chapter 11. And he describes the Gentiles as being a wild olive branch that is grafted into the family tree. Now, to me, that makes these benefits even more exciting to realize that in the original format, I'm not even mentioned in the covenant. I'm a Johnny-come-lately in the sense that God grafted me in to the benefits of covenant salvation. And by faith, Gentiles share in the gospel on an equal basis with the Jews, but the Jews are listed as the primary beneficiaries. That's why Jesus said in John 4.22, salvation is of the Jews. You see, the single requirement of the new covenant is faith in Jesus Christ. And when I place my faith in Jesus Christ, Galatians 3, 7 says, I become a spiritual son of who? A son of Abraham. I'm grafted into that tree. In fact, at the present time, the Gentiles are sharing more in the new covenant than the Jews are. But there will come a day when that will change. After Gentiles have had sufficient time to respond to the gospel, Romans eleven twenty six 26 says, there's coming a day when all Israel will be saved. That's the tribulation. And in that same chapter, after he describes how we are grafted in as a wild olive branch, he tells us that the branches that have been broken off, Israel, are in a future day going to be grafted back into that trunk of covenant salvation. Israel's day is still coming. Fourth characteristic. It is unconditional. Notice verse 9. Not like the covenant which I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, for they did not continue in my covenant, and I did not care for them, says the Lord. Now, how is it not like the covenant God made with the fathers? Well, that covenant was conditional. When they didn't fulfill their part of the covenant, God didn't fulfill His part. That's what it means at the end of verse 9. For they did not continue in my covenant, and I did not care for them, says the Lord. Let me show you this. Go back in your Bible to Exodus chapter 19. Exodus chapter 19, this is the chapter right before Exodus 20 where we're going to see the law. In Exodus chapter 19, the children of Israel come to the foot of Mount Sinai. And I want you to notice what it says in verse 3. It says, And Moses went up to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the sons of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now then, notice, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be my own possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Did you catch that? He's about to give the old covenant, and we're told it is a if-then covenant. If you obey, then you will have this relationship with me. You see, it is conditional. Turn over to Deuteronomy chapter 28. Deuteronomy 28, when Israel entered the land, they were to have half the tribes stand on Mount Gerizim and half the tribes stand on Mount Ebal. And on Mount Gerizim, they were to record all the blessings that would be theirs if they obeyed God. 
And on Mount Ebal, they were to pronounce all the curses that would happen to them if they disobeyed God. In fact, in chapter 28, if you notice verse 1, it says, Now it shall be, if you will diligently obey the Lord your God, being careful to do all His commandments which I command you today, the Lord your God will set you high above all the nations of the earth, and all these blessings shall come upon you. Verse 3, blessing. Verse 4, blessed. Verse 5, blessed. Verse 6, blessed. And then you come down to verse 15, but... It shall come about if you will not obey the Lord your God to observe to do all these commandments and his statutes which I charge you today, then all these curses shall come upon you. Verse 16, cursed. 17, cursed. 18, cursed. 19, cursed. See, even though Israel had been led out of Egypt gently by the Lord, and even though they understood that if we obey, we'll get the blessings, and if we disobey, we'll get the curses, they still disobeyed. Which lets us know the stubborn sinfulness of the human heart apart from regeneration. But you know, when you come back to Hebrews chapter 8, the new covenant is not like the old covenant. It's not conditional. It's unconditional. It's not an if-then relationship. It's an I-will relationship. In fact, if you look at this passage, it's interesting to me how many times God says, I will. Notice verse 8. I will. Verse 10. I will, I will, I will, I will. Verse 12, I will, I will. What's the message? It's not dependent upon us. It is dependent upon God. It is unconditional. And then the fifth characteristic of this covenant is that it is internal. Notice verse 10. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and I will write them upon their hearts. Now when God says my laws, what's he talking about? Well, he's talking about his moral laws. You see, his moral laws are the same under both covenants. In fact, each of the Ten Commandments is repeated in the New Testament with the exception of one commandment, and that commandment is, you shall keep the Sabbath day. In fact, when we come to the New Testament in Colossians 2, 16, 17, we're told that we shouldn't be observing the Sabbath day. And if anybody tries to get us to keep the Sabbath day, they are wrong because it is merely a shadow and Christ is the substance, and He's already here. You see, the ceremonial laws, like you can't pick up sticks on the Sabbath day, or the religious festivals are not repeated in the New Covenant. The dietary laws that you can't have barbecue pork are not repeated in the New Covenant. The governmental laws about tribal distinctions and all the requirements for, for the priesthood are not repeated in the New Covenant. But you see, the moral laws are consistent in both because the moral laws are based upon the character of God. In fact, what's interesting when we come to the New Covenant is that we find that the moral bar is actually raised. The emphasis goes in the, old in the Old Covenant from actions to the New Covenant where the emphasis is not only on actions, but upon thoughts and upon motives. Remember what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5? He said, You have heard it said you shall not commit murder. But I say to you, if you're angry with your brother, you've already committed murder. You have heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you, if you lust after a woman, you have committed adultery already in your heart. You have heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. In other words, you have heard it said, seek justice. But I tell you that if somebody slaps you on the cheek, turn the other cheek. If someone sues you and takes your shirt, give them your coat. If someone wants to take you one mile, go two miles. In other words, no longer be seeking justice, but take a loss out of mercy and grace. You have heard it said, love your neighbor. But I say to you what? Love your enemy. You see, the difference is not that we don't obey under the new covenant. 
The difference is that the old covenant was external laws and the new covenant is internal laws. Now, that's not to say there were no internal laws in the Old Testament. The last commandment was what? You shall not covet. When you come to Romans chapter 7, Paul says, that's the one I choked on. I was doing pretty good with all the externals, and then I got to that last law, you shall not covet, and I didn't have a heart to keep it. Couldn't do it because it wasn't external. That's why when we look at the New Testament compared to the Old Testament, the New Covenant compared to the Old Covenant, we find that even the motivation was different. The Old Covenant had an external motivation. It was fear of consequences. The New Covenant has a new motivation, and that motivation is love. The Old Covenant was written on stone. They took it and wrote it in boxes and put it on their forehead. They wrote it in boxes and put it on their wrist. They wrote it on the doorposts of their house. It was all external. But here it says that the New Covenant is written where? It's written on our hearts. God has put it on our minds. Turn with me back to Deuteronomy chapter 5. Deuteronomy chapter 5. Verse 27. The people say to Moses, Go near and hear all that the Lord our God says. Then speak to us all that the Lord our God will speak to you. And we will hear it and do it. You go talk to the Lord, find out what He says, you bring it back to us, we'll listen to you, and we'll do it. Sounds pretty good, doesn't it? Look at verse 28. And the Lord heard the voice of your words when you spoke to me, and the Lord said to me, I have heard the voice of the words of this people which they have spoken to you. They have done well in all that they have spoken. They have said the right words. We will obey. But notice what verse 29 says. God speaking, Oh, that they had such a heart in them that they would fear me and keep all my commandments always. They're saying the right words. They're signing on, saying we'll do it. But they don't have the heart to carry it out. Look over at Deuteronomy 29 and verse 4. This is Moses speaking. And he says to the children of Israel, chapter 29, verse 4, Yet to this day, the Lord has not given you a heart to know nor eyes to see, nor ears to hear. See, the old covenant was external. They didn't have the heart to be able to carry it out. What about the new covenant? Look at Ezekiel 36. Ezekiel comes after Jeremiah. Ezekiel 36, also describing the new covenant. In Ezekiel 36, in verse 26, God says, Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. And you will be careful to observe my ordinances. What's God going to do under the new covenant? It's not going to be external. It's going to be internal. He's going to give us a new heart and place his spirit within us so that we can carry out his directives. Now come to the New Testament and look at Romans chapter 8. Let's see how this happens. Romans chapter 8. And verse 3, Paul says, For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did, sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and as an offering for sin, He condemned sin in the flesh. Verse 4, In order that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. How is the requirement of the law fulfilled in us as believers today? It says we walk in the power of the Spirit of God. You see, He has come into us and caused us to be reborn. He has taken that heart of stone out of the way and replaced it with God's heart inside of believers, giving us the capacity and the desire 
to obey him. That's why I like what it says in Romans 6, 17. It says, but thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed. Obedient from the heart. See, the new covenant doesn't give us a list of laws. It changes our hard hearts and God places his spirit within us. It is internal. Then the sixth thing we can note is that it is intimate. Look in chapter 8 of Hebrews at the last part of verse 10. It says, And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Now this, this wording is really nothing new because right at the time of the Exodus, in Exodus 6-7, God promised this same thing to Israel, but they never realized it. You see, there is no intimacy between God and man in the Old Covenant. In fact, in in Exodus 19, when God instituted the law on Mount Sinai, He instructed Moses to draw boundaries around the mountain so that the people didn't get too near and be consumed. And then when Moses came up on the mountain, it's interesting if you read that chapter, God says to Moses, I want you to go back down and warn them again, lest one of them break through and perish. The message, even as they got the Old Covenant, was you need to stay away from God. This is not intimate. The tabernacle presented the same concept. There was the veil going into the Holy of Holy Places. Only the high priest could go in there one time a year into that area that, that where, where the Shekinah glory of God was on display. The, the Old Covenant kept sinners at a distance, kept them away from God. In fact, there's an interesting verse. You can look it up later. It's in Exodus 24.1 where God says to Moses and Aaron and Nadab and Abihu and the 70 elders of Israel, these are the spiritual leaders of Israel. This is what God says to them. Come up to the Lord and you shall worship at a distance. What a telling phrase. Come up to the Lord and I'll let you worship at a distance. That's the old covenant. You get to worship, but you have to stay at a distance. What do we find under the new covenant? The new covenant invites sinners to draw near to the very throne of God through the blood of Jesus Christ to receive mercy and grace. You see, we don't have to stand at the foot of the mountain and tremble at the thunder. We don't have to worship at a distance With Jesus as our high priest, we get to enter through the veil into the holy of holy places. Under the new covenant, God calls us his children, and we get to call him what? Abba, Daddy. It's intimate. And then the seventh thing we can note is that it is all-inclusive. Verse 11 of Hebrews 8 says, And they shall not teach everyone his fellow citizen and everyone his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for all shall know me from the least to the greatest of them. Now, All the Jews were under the Old Covenant given at Sinai, but most of them were unbelievers who didn't know God. That's clear earlier in Hebrews, in Hebrews chapter 4, where we're told that they didn't enter God's rest. In fact, only two out of that first generation that that didn't die in the wilderness. So they were under the covenant, but their, their bodies were scattered all over the wilderness because they really didn't know the Lord. They lived in unbelief. In contrast, under the New Covenant, we're told in 1 Corinthians 12, 13, by one Spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and we were all made to drink of one Spirit. See, the New Covenant is all-inclusive in terms of the fact that nobody who gets under the New Covenant falls out, drops out, loses out. And secondly, it's all-inclusive in the sense that there are no second-class citizens. And that's what it means at the end of verse 11 when it says, for all shall know me from the least to the greatest of them. In fact, earlier in this verse it says, uh, you won't have to teach your brother. He's not talking about the fact that there would be no teachers under the new covenant. Because Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11 tells us that there are teachers under the new covenant. But what he's saying is that there is no priestly hierarchy. We don't have to approach God through a priest. 
In Christ, every believer is a priest. And in Christ, we all have access to God. We don't have to go through some hierarchy to get there. And there are no limitations in terms of access to God or understanding God. And that's what he means when he says, all shall know me from the least to the greatest. I love that. There are no second-class citizens in the kingdom of God. His covenant with us is all-inclusive. And then eighth and finally, it is merciful. Verse 12, For I will be merciful to their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. Now, if you haven't gotten excited yet, this should do it. Because this is the capstone of the new covenant. This is what man needed more than anything else. This is what the old covenant could only picture, but couldn't provide. Under the old covenant, the sacrifices were made day after day after day. All they did was reminded men of their sin. All they could do was foreshadow and anticipate the coming of Jesus Christ. But under the new covenant, inaugurated by the blood of Jesus, God can say, I remember your sins no more. Remember under the old covenant when, when Moses came up on the mountain, God was giving them tablets to take down, and before he could even get down the mountain with the tablets, Israel had already broken the first commandment. They had made a golden calf, and they were bowing down and worshiping a golden calf. You remember how God responded to that? Exodus 32, verses 7 to 10, God turns to Moses and said, they're, they're, they've made a calf, and they're, they're worshiping a calf at the foot of the mountain. He said, I'm, what I'm going to do is I'm going to destroy all those people and Moses, I'm going to make a nation out of you. It tells us God was angry. God gave a covenant. They broke the covenant before they even got it. And God said, I'm ready to start over. It tells us something about the contrast of the two covenants. The old covenant prov provoked God's wrath because it was dependent on us. The new covenant provokes God's mercy because it's dependent upon Jesus. What a covenant. What an agreement. What a contract. What a relationship. Now, this is not like reading my insurance policy where every year it seems I pay more and get less. This is a situation where we come to the negotiating table as debtors. We are bankrupt. We have no leverage. We hold no chips. And God doesn't say to us, thou shalt not sin. God says, I will be merciful to your sins and I will remember them no more. Have you accepted the terms of that covenant? Have you come into this new covenant relationship with God? The way you do that is through Jesus Christ. Remember, he said, this is the new covenant in my blood. His blood paid the whole price for the new covenant. And so my question to you this morning is, have you entered into that covenant with God through Jesus Christ? You said, but Dan, I'm not worthy. Well, that's okay. Because verse 11 says it includes the least. If that's you, then you qualify. You say, but Dan, I, I can't keep my end of the bargain. Well, that's okay. It's unconditional. God doesn't say, thou shalt. God says, I will. See, I don't read about any deductible in here. There's no copay. The payment has been made. It's all made by God at the cross when Jesus paid the debt of your sin, past, present, and future. You say, but Dan, I, I'll disappoint God. Well, that's why he says in here, I will be merciful to your sins. And that's why he says, I will write my laws on your heart. You say, well, Dan, how could God do this? Why would God make this kind of covenant with us? Well, I got one answer. 
in one word. It's Jesus. It's Jesus. You hear me? There we go. We will spend eternity scratching our collective heads in wonder and amazement as to why he would do that. But we will also spend eternity bowing before him and giving him all praise and worship and glory that only he deserves. And so as we close the service today, I'm going to ask the praise team to come back. We're going to close our service with a short chorus. We're going to stand as we do that. I don't know how God may have spoken to you today, but if you'd like to talk with someone, if you'd like to pray with someone, if you would like to join our fellowship, whatever God is speaking to your heart about today, I'm going to give you the opportunity to come as we close our service singing together in praise to the Lord.